morning again. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7, sorry, verses 13 through 29. Before we read God's word, let's pray together and ask for his blessing. Our Father, we come before you once again to hear from you. Uh, We long to hear from you. We need to hear from you uh, because we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We know that your words give life. So we pray that you would open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds, that we would receive your word this morning, that we would receive the life that you have to offer Uh, that we would receive your Son afresh, that we would look on him and see him in all of his glory, and that we would trust in him and rest in him, find our salvation in him. Father, use your word this morning. Work through it by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, authority is a dirty word in our culture. Authority figures are are those who stop us from having fun, we think. Uh, Authority is what we must throw off if we are to realize our true individual potential. Authority is, is typically equated with authoritarian Authority means to have the right to control or command or or determine or or govern. But authority is really about speech, on one level at least. Uh, The word jurisdiction, I love the word jurisdiction. It sounds like a funny word to love, but I really do. It's a great word. And um, 
the word jurisdiction, if you look it up in the dictionary, one of the definitions is, is power, authority, control, right? It's kind of a synonym for authority. But, but jurisdiction in its origin means the right to speak. The right to speak. That's what jurisdiction means. Authority is having the right to speak. It's more than that. Yeah, it's more than that. That's true. But it also means having the ability to back up your words or having the right to back up your words. Uh, but, but at least it means having the right to speak. Laws are the government speaking into our lives. Do this, don't do that, right? Stop at red lights, pay your taxes. And we are held accountable for obeying that speech. Right? They speak and, and we are accountable for listening. Uh, parents have a right to speak into the lives of their children. Elders have a right to speak into the lives of their congregation, which is scarier for me than it is for you. Trust me. What's the first act of authority in history? Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. God exercises his right to speak into the void. That's authority. Why don't we like authority? Well, we don't like authority often because we don't want others speaking into our lives. We don't want people telling us what to do. Now, that's not actually true in every culture, uh, but in our culture, we like our autonomy. Right? We like to be self-governed. Uh, we're okay with suggestions, Right? That's fine. You can give me a suggestion if you want. But, but when we talk about authority, we're talking about the right to speak. We mean more than suggestions. The government doesn't suggest that you stop at red lights or pay your taxes. Right? Well, this morning's passage, we're going to see that, that we're all confronted with a choice of, of submitting to or rejecting the authority of Jesus. And our outline, you can see in your bulletin on the back, our outline is, uh, we'll talk about one authority, we'll talk about two ways, three dangers, and then one choice. In light of what we said, it's, it's interesting what the crowds say about Jesus in the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, verses 28 and 29 say this, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, the crowds aren't meditating on sort of the deep meaning of authority, but in light of what we've just said, they're saying, look, this guy, Jesus, he's speaking as if he had a right to speak. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, they never said, here's what I think, right? But, but they always said, here's what Rabbi so-and-so said, right? They, they, didn't, they knew they didn't have a right to speak in their own authority, so they, they quoted somebody else who was a given authority on a subject. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't do that. His claim by the very manner of his speaking is that he has a right to speak. He has a right to, to speak about the Father. He has a right to speak about our relationship to the Father. He has a right to speak into our lives. He has a right to say, do this, don't do that. Jesus is claiming authority, and the people know it. They realize it. Well, which brings us to a very good question, which is what right does Jesus have to exercise this kind of authority? What right does he have to tell us, do this, don't do that? 
What right does he have to tell us how to live? And it's actually a question that comes up later in the Gospel of Matthew and Matthew, 11, Matthew 21. People ask Jesus this question. Where does your authority come from? And it's really an important question. In fact, it is the question of life. Because if Jesus has a right to speak into our lives, we need to listen. Because like with governments and parents and so on, we will be held accountable for whether we listen or not. Of course, if Jesus doesn't have a right to speak, then we can all go home. There's no reason to be here. So this issue is of extreme importance. Does Jesus have a right to speak into our lives? Does he have authority? Well, I want us to go back first before Jesus' sermon, right? Before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil. And Jesus responds to the devil. Uh, His first response is, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then comes this sermon. And we're told in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, it says, and Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then it goes on. And you might wonder, well, why does Matthew mention that Jesus opens his mouth? Right? I mean, Luke doesn't. Luke has a very similar section in Luke chapter 6. And Luke says, actually, Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, right? Luke mentions Jesus' eyes. Matthew mentions Jesus' mouth. Why? Right? Why, why? why mention that Jesus opened his mouth and said, well, because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Matthew's making a connection here. Sometimes when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, people see Jesus as kind of like a new Moses in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you've heard this before, maybe not. But, you know, in the Exodus, after the Exodus, they pass through the Red Sea. The Israelites go into the wilderness. Moses goes up onto a mountain. He receives the law from God, and then he distributes that to the people. And here Jesus goes through the waters of baptism. He's tempted in the wilderness. He goes up on a mountain, and then he speaks his law to his disciples. But Jesus is not a new Moses. He is not being pictured as a new Moses. Jesus is, uh, in the Exodus, Moses is the one who receives the law on the mountain. Jesus is here giving the law on the mountain. Jesus is not a new Moses. Jesus is God giving his law to his disciples. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Jesus opens his mouth and begins to speak, and he speaks with authority. Why? Because he's God. Because he has divine authority. He is the one who made the heavens and the earth. He is the one who made humanity. He's the one who made his disciples. He's the one who made you and me. Jesus has the right to speak into your life and to mine because because he made us. Like a painter has authority over his painting to do with as he will, right? So Jesus has authority over us. He made us. He owns us. Of course, there's more to it than that because we'll see this throughout our study of Matthew. We're going to keep talking about Jesus' authority because it keeps coming up. But for now, we've seen Jesus has authority because he's God in the flesh. But he also has authority because of his word as Messiah, as the anointed king. And Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, he's, he's the king, the king who comes, and he comes in order to defeat our enemies for us. And he goes to the cross and he defeats our enemies by his death. And then he rises from the dead. And it's then in Matthew 28, 18, Matthew 28, 18, that Jesus says, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, Jesus has authority twice over by virtue of his deity and creation, but also by virtue of his redemptive work. Right Through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus redeemed the world from sin. He purchased by his blood uh, all things. It belongs to him. We belong to him. He has conquered through the cross, and the world is, is the spoils of war, as it were. Right? Jesus has won us by his death. And so we belong to him twice over. We belong to him by virtue of creation. We belong to him by virtue of redemption. He has authority. He has the right to speak into our lives. Well, I've spent some time talking about Jesus' authority and establishing that as, as God and as Christ, as Messiah, because the rest of the passage is all about how we relate to that authority, how we respond to the authority of Jesus. And we see essentially that there are two ways, right? two ways that we respond to the authority of Jesus. <clears throat> Verses 13 and 14 say this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, Jesus there talks about two gates or two ways, and there are different ways of understanding these two uh, images, but one way is to see the gates as opening up to, to the path, right, or to the way. So there are the, there's this wide gate that opens on to this easy path, and there's this narrow gate that opens on to this difficult path. And of course, it seems like a no-brainer, right, because if there's, a, if there's an easy path that's easy to find, that's the way you're typically going to take. You're not going to intentionally choose the difficult way. Seems like a no-brainer, except that the wide gate with the easy path leads to destruction, and the narrow gate with the hard path leads to life. Jesus is saying, look, there are two ways to live. There are only two paths you can go by, the path that leads to life and the path that leads to destruction. Now, some people, they come to this kind of passage and they think this is the problem with Christianity, isn't it? Right? It's narrow. It's exclusive. There are, there's this road or that road, and you have to make your choice. There's only two roads. One's right, one's wrong. And Christianity, right? Christianity is obviously the right road, and, and everybody else is wrong. And here's the, here's the problem with Christianity. It's this very narrow, very exclusive religion. But interestingly, these are the words of Jesus, right? Normally, people will say Christians are narrow-minded. Jesus was okay. These are the, these are the words of Jesus, Right? This is not Christians saying this, but Jesus saying there are just two roads, one to life, one to destruction. And it's not narrow if Jesus is right. You know, it's not narrow to say that all people must breathe air to live. You wouldn't say you're being narrow and exclusivistic, right? No, you're just stating the way it is. And that's what Jesus is doing. More important than arguing over whether Jesus is being exclusivistic or not is understanding these two roads, right? Where do these two roads depart? Or put positively, what is the road to life? And that's the one we want to be on, right? We want to be on the road to life. So what is it? What is this road to life? The road to life is acknowledging the authority of Jesus. That's what the rest of the passage is about. That's what we're going to see. That's what we're going to see with the false prophets, right, who are those who claim to have authority. Uh, there's, there's those who call Jesus Lord, Lord, those who acknowledge his authority, right? It's all about the authority of Jesus. The road to life is 
is acknowledging the authority of Jesus. Jesus is the one who has authority, which means the two ways to live, right? Road one, reject the authority of Jesus. Road two, acknowledge it. Now, I I should give a clarification at this point, and that is that, that the way that we enter and stay in the Christian life is not by what we do, but it's by faith. And and, and I'm going to repeat this again later, but I want you to hear it now. You become a Christian, right? You're you're saved from the coming wrath of God by what Jesus did on the cross, by trusting in his work on your behalf. But we're saved into a life of obedience, right? That's the path that Jesus sets before his people. He says to his disciples, follow me. He calls us into a life of discipleship, a life of obedience to the authority of Jesus. So Jesus is is going to use his authority. As we go on in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see Jesus use his authority to heal people and to forgive sins and to undo the effects of sin in the world. He's a good king, right? He's not a tyrant. He's not a self-serving dictator. But that doesn't mean, right, just because he uses authority in good ways, that doesn't mean he's to be obeyed any less, No, we are to obey our good king. And so there are these two paths. There's the path of life, which however much we may stumble on that path, which we do, it's pursuing obedience to King Jesus. Well, that sets us up for these three dangers, right? And three dangers as we seek to walk on this narrow path of obedience. The first, it, we see it in the first section about the narrow gate. It's the danger of comfort and company. You know, following Jesus, according to Jesus, is, is a hard and lonely road. He says the way is hard and those who find it are few. Now, my natural inclination, and my guess is your natural inclination, is to avoid things that are hard. My first impulse is to go along with people around me because that's easier than going against them. Most of the world doesn't acknowledge the authority of Jesus. In our culture, again, autonomy rules, right? Everyone has the right to do with himself or herself as he or she sees fit. I run my own life. I can do as I please. Nobody tells me how how to live or what to be. We live in an age of the sovereign self, right? I'm in charge of me. And so acknowledging the authority of Jesus goes against the grain of culture. It goes against the grain of the people around us. And that's not easy, right? It's not easy to to take Sunday off from our regular work and spend time with God's people in a world that says just run, run, run 24-7. It's awkward at times not to laugh at your coworker's inappropriate joke. It's hard not to get caught up in the, the me first rat race of trying to get ahead in your career, It it takes effort to avoid filling your mind with the sexual immorality that is so prevalent in our culture all around us. And it's uncomfortable to to talk about our allegiance to Jesus when much of the culture looks at the Bible as just a book of fairy tales. And so unless I want to stick out, unless I want to to go against the flow, I, I really need to reject Jesus and just do my own thing, which is ironic, by the way. If I don't want to stick out, I need to do my own thing. And so the ease of going along with culture, of justifying my actions because everybody else is doing it, right? Why can't we, right? This is an ever-present temptation. It's easy to go with the flow. And Jesus says there are two ways to live, right? The one way is the way to life, but the other way has its attractions. It's it's comfortable, it's easy, and, and there's plenty of company on that road. 
And so the first danger as we pursue obedience to our Savior is the attraction of comfort and company. The second danger is the, the danger of deceit. Verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus says, there's this, there's this path I want you to walk. Follow me. But there are others who would call for your allegiance, false prophets, Jesus says. Now, who are these false prophets Jesus is talking about? Well, he probably has in mind religious leaders. Uh, Hence, he says, wolves in sheep's clothing. They disguise themselves as just another sheep, just part of the flock of Jesus. But their motives are suspect. They're really in it for themselves. And, of course, we know this happens, sadly, church leaders who are not in leadership to care for the flock, but to use it or to abuse it. And yet there there are all kinds of false prophets, aren't they? All all kinds of messages we get every day from from the world around us. There are false prophets in every age, some advocating bad things, some advocating us to, to devote our lives to good things instead of Jesus. There are false prophets who call for our allegiance who lead us down the road of destruction, the prophets of wealth and ease, the prophets of cool and style, the, the prophets of, of family values and, quiet, and a quiet life, the prophets of social justice and, and moral living, right? Whatever it is, even prophets of theology and Bible study and prayer, right? Good things, but people call us to give our allegiance to those things instead of to Jesus, and there are many who have devoted their lives to those, to even good things rather than to Jesus, who is the one who made all things good. Well, what voices do you hear around you, at work, in class, in your neighborhood? What, what, who is calling for your attention? What is calling for your allegiance? What is calling for your time or your money or your abilities? Jesus says, beware of these false prophets. Now, sometimes these false prophets are obvious, but sometimes not so much. And especially in the church, it's sometimes hard to tell. I mean, so Jesus gives us a simple criterion in verse 16. He says in verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. See, the fruit that a bush or a tree bears is the key indicator as to what kind of a tree it is. If it bears apples, you know it's an apple tree. If, it, if its fruit is good, you know it's healthy. If, if the fruit on the vine is shriveled and small and bitter and smelly, then you know there's something wrong with this tree. And in the same way, if someone's life is bad, it's a good indicator there's something wrong with their teaching. Now, as a teacher, I have to plead for realism here, right? Because obviously Jesus is not saying that, that good teachers will be perfect in everything that they do. And yet he is saying that their lives will bear out the truth of their words. If one's life is out of accord with the gospel, if a teacher in the church is not living consistently with what the the gospel teaches, then their teaching is suspect, no matter how good it sounds. They may have the right words, that's true, but their lives contradict their teaching, which sends a mixed message and therefore a false message. And part of the reason for this is clear from Paul. There's this refrain in Paul's writings. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3.17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
See, we're not just to, to listen, according to Paul, to the, to the teaching of our teachers, to the words of our teachers, but we're to follow their example. And so the kind of teacher that you are to listen to is not one that simply has the right words, but one that lives the right life. Do not be deceived, Paul, uh, Jesus says. A tree is known by its fruits. And so there are two dangers. As we seek to pursue obedience to King Jesus, one danger is the attraction of comfort and company. The other danger is, is the deceit of false prophets, religious leaders who would, who would lead us astray from actually following Jesus. And finally, there's the danger of presumption. And presumption is, is a kind of self-deceit, isn't it? Presumption, presumption looks like assurance. It says, sure, I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. I've got nothing to worry about. No problems. Presumptuous people acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, Jesus says. They know and proclaim and profess that he has authority. But there's a problem. Their words are empty. Their actions are not consistent with their profession. So verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, it's one thing to call Jesus Lord, but it's another to actually obey him as such. It's easy to say you're a Christian. It's easy to say you believe that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. It's another thing to give evidence that you actually mean that. Now, these people that Jesus is talking about in verse 21, they're actually very active, which is maybe one thing that's so interesting. They're not, they don't have a mere profession. They're very active. Look at verses 22 and 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, they didn't have a mere profession. They, they said they followed Jesus, and then they did things to show that that was true. But notice what's going on here. These people are claiming association with Jesus based on their religious activity. Right? I mean, they're, they're doing things, prophesying, which we would say preaching is probably what they're talking about. They're proclaiming who Jesus is, right? They're casting out demons. They're doing mighty works. They're saying, look at my religious works, Jesus. Look at my great ministries that I've been a part of. Look at all that I've done for the church. We've been so active for you, Jesus. And you might think that the problem here is that these people are pointing to their works instead of to grace. And of course, that is a problem. But that's not the problem that Jesus points out. He says they did not do the will of the Father, but were workers of lawlessness. Despite all those religious things that they did, Jesus calls them workers of lawlessness. They did all this great ministry. How could Jesus say that? Well, think about the kinds of things Jesus has been teaching in this sermon. Right? Go back through chapter 5 and chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7. What has Jesus been teaching? He has not been giving us lessons on, on church work or ministry. He will go on to talk about ministry more in Matthew, but that's not really his focus here in, 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 the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Here Jesus talks about very normal everyday things like anger and lust and keeping your word and forgiving others and living before God and not men. See, these people here in, in Matthew 7 are, are being rejected not because they, they, they didn't do amazing, extravagant ministry in the church. They're rejected because they didn't live for Jesus in their day-to-day -day lives. They, they didn't submit to Jesus' authority in their relationships and their motives and their vocations. Their religion was just an add-on 
It was just a, a job, an activity. They did these things, and then they said, look, Jesus, we did, we did those things. We did those religious things. And Jesus is saying that on the day of judgment, on that day, that's what verse 22 says, on that day, we will be judged not simply based on what we say, and we're not going to be based on our ministerial resume, but by the way that we live. All right, take a deep breath. You know, we believe that the Bible teaches that no one can escape judgment based on what they do. We escape judgment based solely on the death of Jesus in our place. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, uh, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We are saved, we say, by grace through faith and not by works. But if we're not saved by works, what does it mean that we will be judged according to the way that we live? I mean, why does Jesus point out that they've lived the wrong way? There are different ways, actually, of answering that question. We are saved by grace through faith. But on the last day, our actions will be used by God as evidence of that faith. They will bear witness to who we are. Our salvation is by faith alone, but our lives give evidence of our salvation in the way that we live. Now, that evidence is different for different people. Uh, For some, it may look like living an upright moral life. And some of us look good. And we look good because God is genuinely working in us. And we're beginning to live a new life that's consistent with his word. For all of us, right, there's a constant struggle, though. There's a fight against remaining sin. That struggle, that fight is evidence of God's work in us. For some, it means simply hating that sin even in the midst of it. That God has changed our desires and yet we we keep doing the same thing again and again. We hate it. We don't want to do it. Paul says in, in, in Romans... Chapter 7, he says he wants to do what he wants to do, he doesn't do, and he does what he doesn't want to do. Right? He, he wants to do the right thing, but he keeps going back and doing the wrong thing again and again. See, we enter, we enter onto the path of the Christian life through the door of God's grace in Christ. We remain on that path by God's grace in Christ. And sometimes we're running down that path and we're, we feel like life is going great and we're serving Jesus with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Sometimes we're walking on that path and things are going okay, but we know we're struggling and we're wrestling with sin. Sometimes we're crawling. Sometimes we're barely looking in the right direction, right? We hate sin. We wish things would be different. See, I don't want to assume what this is going to look like, but, but only that, that if you acknowledge the lordship of Jesus, your life will begin to reflect that on some level, if only in your attitude toward your laziness in pursuing Jesus. You know, the real concrete sign of presumption or, or, is apathy, right? Apathy. Apathy is, is uh, well, I just don't really even care. I don't care whether I obey Jesus or not. I don't care whether he's glorified. You know, I'm saved. I've got my ticket into heaven, and I just don't care what happens next. Now, you may say, well, I don't care sometimes, but I, and I hate it. I hate the fact that I don't care. Well, then you do care, <laughs> right? Right? But if you don't care about obedience to King Jesus, then all the praise and the ministry in the world will not get you into his kingdom. 
And this is not, this is not the danger here is to, think, to, to shift into a works righteousness, that therefore I'm, I'm, I'm boasting before God based on what I do. And that, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's calling us to discipleship. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the verses I quoted before, great verses. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, that, that salvation by grace leads somewhere because we're new creations in Christ. He's remaking us in his image. And we shouldn't presume how fast or slow that should be. We certainly shouldn't judge other people in terms of how fast or slow it should be for them. But God is working in us in his time. He is remolding us after his image. Works do not save us. We, we are not saved by works, but we are saved unto works. Works are the evidence of a life changed by Christ. Have you been giving lip service to Jesus and not actually sought to live for King Jesus? Have you rested in your religious works as if going to church or, or saying your prayers or reading your Bible, as if those things are what are going to get you into heaven or are even the true sign of a relationship to Jesus and, and, and you haven't actually sought to follow him in every area of life? A tree is known by its fruit, Jesus says. When we call Jesus Lord, we're committing to following Jesus. Pursue him. Pursue him with all your heart. Pursue him with all your mind and all your soul. And when you, when you fail at that, which you will, right? I mean, you will, right? I mean, that, that, you're going to fail regularly. When you fail, confess your sin to Jesus and say, Jesus, help, help me to pursue you again. I know you love me in the gospel. Your love is not dependent on what I do. I know you're working in me. Keep working, Jesus. Change me. Conform me into your image. And so we have this choice, right? We have this choice. Am I going to reject the comfort and company of the world for the loneliness and difficulty of following Jesus? Am I going to, to block out the siren calls of the prophets of our age that call me to individualism and self-indulgence and self-actualization and pursue all that Jesus has for me? Am I going to confess how I have given Jesus lip service and thought that ministry would count as sufficient evidence of my connection with him? And am I going to pursue instead that long, hard road of being conformed to his character? That's the choice that we all have. And Jesus gives us one last picture to encourage us to make this right choice. And it's a picture of two builders, right? One, one's wise, uh, he builds on the rock. The second is foolish, he builds on the sand. It's a, it may be a well-known image of Jesus. The difference between these two, right, is, is between those who hear Jesus' words and do them and those who hear Jesus' words and ignore them. The, the rock is the words of Jesus. The sand is the ever-changing and ever-shifting wisdom of this world. And the rains fall and the floods come and the winds blow and they beat against these two houses and the one stands firm and the other falls. The question I want to ask is, what's the storm? Right? What, what's the storm? The storm is judgment. That's, that's what's being talked about in this passage, right? The, you know, it, it, we saw it back in uh, verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus is saying judgment will come. 
Uh, we saw that in verse 22 when Jesus says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus is talking about judgment day. He's talking about coming before the judgment seat of Christ. The storm is judgment. Here the storm, you know, sometimes we think about storms as, as sort of the, the, the difficulties of life. And of course, it could refer to that. But in the context, it's really, it, it's moving us to judgment day, to think about the future, to think about that day when all of your works will be tested. And Paul talks about that in, in, in Corinthians. He says, uh, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and our works will be tested by fire. And judgment is often talked about in terms of cataclysmic natural disasters like it is here. The flood in Noah's day is a good example of that. Well, why is it that, we are, that, that, that those who hear and do Jesus' words will survive the judgment to come? Why is it that those who hear and do Jesus' words will survive the judgment to come? Is it because their works are better it's, it's, it's interesting. The, 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 the illustration that Jesus is giving is interesting because Jesus does not say that the house built on the rock was a better house, only that the foundation was better. Right? It's the, it, you know, there are two houses. From, from all appearances, you might look at them and say they look exactly the same, but one survives and one doesn't. Why? Why will we survive judgment in that day? Well, it's because ultimately Jesus has already undergone judgment for us, and we've built our house on him. You know, Jesus' baptism earlier in water was a sign of that. He identified with us in our condemnation. Later, uh, Jesus will refer to his cross as his baptism. The cross is where Jesus undergoes the, the watery judgment of death for us. He passes through the waters in the language of Isaiah. Jesus faced judgment in our place, which is why when we live based on his words, we will be saved from judgment because he was judged for us. Look to Jesus. He will protect you both from the storms of life and from the judgment to come because he's been there. He's done that in our place for us. Call him Lord and pursue obedience to King Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we hear your call as your disciples that you, 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 you promise to give us life because of your death and resurrection. And then you call us to new obedience. And that's scary on so many levels, Jesus. It's scary because we're afraid to give up the reins of our lives. We, we like to be in control. It's, it's scary because we think we can't do it. We're never going to do it, Jesus. We're going to keep falling short, and you know that. And you're ready to forgive, ready to pardon. Jesus, fill us with your spirit so that we would pursue you more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.